Welcome back to How to Tickle Yourself. I am your host, Duff McDonald, along with my co-host, Matt McButter. A few weeks ago, we talked with a professional storyteller, Rich Cohen, Duff McDonald's favorite writer. This week, we come at storytelling from a slightly different angle. We're going to talk about the stories that we tell ourselves, specifically those stories that place limits around our unlimited selves why we do it, how we might stop doing it, and what happens if you can do so. Our guest, Tom Asaker, is, in his own description, a wayward creative force. He's been an artist, a professional magician, an inventor, and a screenwriter. He is also the author of a book I've recently read. It's called Your Brain on Story. The Destructive Seduction of the Hero's Journey. There's a lot in that book that overlaps with Tickled. So Tom and I are singing from the same songbook, and I think for very interesting reasons, which makes it a genuine pleasure to have him come and talk to us about how to make your life the greatest story ever told, or not told, or something. Or not a story. Or not not a story. (laughs) Welcome, Tom. We are glad to have you. Thanks. It's great to be here with you. At the present moment, my love, my dear, oh, everything's connected. This life, this world, it's all right now, right here. Right now, right here. Right now, right here. So I think it's in near the end of your book, I read the following paragraph, and I want to ask you about what is obviously some kind of revelation. You wrote, once upon a time, a mind-altering thought grabbed hold of me and would not let go. What if our basic reality, what we know to be true about how to think and live, is misguided? More to the underlying philosophy of this book... What if the self-centered stories we tell ourselves about the world and about ourselves are preventing us from living passionately, peacefully, and in an inclusive and integrated way? How does a mind-altering thought like that grab hold of someone? What (laughs) What was going on? Take us into it a little bit. I think my mind has been wired a little differently than everyone right from right from the get go, probably because of my uh, upbringing, which if we can dive into if you want to. But that thought happened because I was working on a screenplay and I'm working with a co-writer. And, you know, when you're doing these screenplays, you have to do all this backstory of the characters to try to understand why they are the way they are and why they do what they do. And you have to keep it consistent and coherent and connected. And it has to all make sense so that the viewer stays tuned in and they suspend disbelief. And we got to some point in in the script where things were slowing down a little bit. So I asked my co-writer, I said, we should do something a little bit different here with the character Phil. And she said to she said something which I thought was stupid. It was it sounded outrageous, 
something out of character for this guy, Phil. And when she said it, I had a bodily visceral reaction. And I looked at her and I said, I think I said, what the fuck are you talking about? Phil would never do that. (laughs) And then I felt myself almost leave my body and look back at myself saying, Phil would never do that. And I said, what the hell does that mean? This is a fictional character. (laughs) I can make this guy fly. I can make him do anything if I want to. And that's when I realized, holy shit, this is why people in real life don't do what they want to do because Jeff would never do that. Matt would never do that. Tom would never do that. We get stuck in these imaginary stories and we take them seriously and we take our <laughs> roles seriously. And it just it blew my mind when that happened. It blew, absolutely. Like I said, I had a visceral reaction to it. It was so wrong. <laughs> you know, one of the things with Tickled, which is sort of it came out of nowhere, is I was a business writer. Tickled is not a business book. and. One of the reasons looking back that I had not done something other than what I had done was because I told myself I was a business writer. That was the story. It never even occurred to me to write something other a bit other than a business book. Okay, I got another quote for you. <laughs> and this what this one this one crosses over very like quite clearly with tickled. You say here, certainty, comparison, and comfort are the enemies of living an exciting and meaningful life. I talk in Tickled about realizing belatedly that I was addicted to certainty, right? Tell us about where's that thinking come from and sort of flesh it out for us a little bit. Yes. So because we think we're in a role and we're playing a role to getting some happily ever after place, we're always on the lookout for things that are going on to make sure that we understand how it's going to play out. I mean, can you imagine if you were in an actual play and you showed up the night of the play and all the actors are on a stage and you said, yeah, I don't know what the hell's going on. I haven't read the script. Who gives a shit? Let's have some fun, right? That wouldn't work out too well. And, it, and that's how it feels with us with other people. Like, okay, if I, if I'm going to be on this podcast, I should know what Duff's going to be asking. So I'll have a good response. So I'll, uh, you know, attract his audience. (laughs) No, no, that's, that's that desire for certainty, which gives you this feeling of comfort. I know what's going to happen. I know how everything's going to play out. I'll be safe. I'll get what I want out of life. It's complete illusion. You have no idea what's going to happen, what's going to play out. But we're afraid to do we're afraid to do improv. We're afraid to get on the stage and somebody just says something to us. You know, somebody says, you're a fire truck, be a fire truck. We're afraid to just be a fire truck. Little kids are not afraid because they don't care what you think. They don't care. I was sitting next to this little girl once and all these little kids were eating strawberries. They were dipping them into like chocolate fondue or something. And I, and I left the adults because they were boring me. And I sat with these kids and I, I grabbed a strawberry and I dipped it. And then I looked over at this little girl. She was probably three years old and she had a cheeks full of strawberries. She looked like a squirrel with these strawberries stuck in her mouth. And I looked at her and I said, Elsie, what are you doing with all those strawberries? 
And I'm telling you, without hesitation, she looked right at me and she said, I like them, Tom. Right? Like, what kind of stupid question is that? Because in her mind, that question was meaningless. I'm eating strawberries because I like them. Why are you asking me that? And what was what I was asking was, there's a social convention that says you don't jam all these strawberries into your face. So I'm going to subtly teach you about these social conventions. So it's the social conventions that are screwing everybody up, frankly. The sort of scope of your field of vision with respect to this stuff is, um, you know, betrays a, a wider awareness than typical. Would love to know where this came from for you and sort of how you got the sort of ability to look at the ego for what it is, right? That's one of the biggest tricks that I've discovered uh, that one can learn is the ability to see outside oneself for the first or whatever time in your life. So, so where's this coming from? All right. I've, I have a hypothesis. Okay. I have, it hasn't been proven out scientifically, <laughs> but here's what I think happened. I was, I was born in the deep South in the mid fifties, uh, you know, with, with all the, the racial segregation and, it was just a strange, to me, it was a very strange place, but I was born there. I mean, that's where my mother's family was from. My dad's family was from outside of Boston and they were like Maronite Catholics. And I was an altar boy, but my relatives were Pentecostal and Baptist preachers. And I, I mean, so picture this now. So my brain, like everybody's brain is trying to make sense of the world to try to understand what's the right way to do things, what's the right way to live, what's the right things to wear, how should I cut my hair, how, what should I eat? Everything I saw was conflicting. Everything. So my brain's on the lookout and it's getting puzzled all just always. Like, should I be this? Should I become that? I have rich relatives that are miserable, poor ones that are happy. Everything was confusing to my brain. I think what happened because of that is what happens when Zen Buddhists give you a koan. They give you something that you can't solve. It blows up your brain and you become aware. So I think my thinking mind blew up when I was little and it said, this is, this is all made up. It has to be made up. I'm being told different things from all kinds of authority figures all over the place. So it has to be invented. It can't, there is no one way. I couldn't find one. So I think that's what happened. Really early on, it happened. This book, Your Brain on Story, is really interesting. You use the phrase self-referential prediction, which is a good a description of the ego as I have ever seen, right? So one, predictions are folly, as Matt and I have talked about a lot, right? We think we can predict the future, but we can't. But so many of our predictions are self-referential, right? We don't... Most of us don't go around predicting the weather. We predict implicitly or explicitly what's going to happen to us right? or what we want to happen to us. So what do you tell someone who says, okay, I hear you. I hear you. I want out. I want out. How do I get out of my brain on story? What's the way to do this? What do you, what, what do you tell them? Now, this is, this is going to be a tough one to... I mean, help me help you and help me <laughs> with this. Um, you know that old song? I think it was uh, Donovan. First there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is a mountain. 
right? Mm -hmm. So here's what mm -hmm. happens. Here's what happens with your brain if you're unlucky. See, I was lucky. I got my head blew up really early on. But if you're unlucky and, and you're in a fairly coherent environment, what happens is first there, there is no thoughts, really. Your thoughts are you. You don't really differentiate them, right? You're like going through life and it's just pushing you. You don't, you don't realize it. You're not aware of it at all. And then maybe because you get frustrated and anxious and worried later in life, you start becoming aware of these thoughts. Oh boy, now there are these thoughts and you're looking at them and you're saying, oh, these are separate than me. I don't like these thoughts. They're separate. And so people will say things like, ah, just let them pass like clouds in the sky or whatever. And, and, and they won't. And when you're doing meditation, they'll pass, but then you go back to work and somebody calls you an asshole and now they're back, right? So they, they don't go away because you haven't realized these aren't things that are going to go away. These are you. Your thoughts are you, just like your genetics are you, just like my bad knee is me. Come to terms with the fact that these are me. Now what? Now what? It's like that movie, A Beautiful Mind. I don't know if you've seen that movie, right? It's a, just a great mm -hmm. movie. And at the end of the movie, the only way John Nash could get out of what these voices, the schizophrenia was doing is he said, that little girl never ages. He understood what was going on logically in his brain. And that's what prevented those voices and those people from having the effect that they had. They stayed there. If you remember the movie, they were there right through the end. They just weren't talking to him anymore because he wasn't listening. So I think if you hear these voices and you don't listen, it's kind of like a parent that keeps telling you, like my dad would keep telling me things and I would never do it. He just gave up. At a certain point, he said, okay, this guy's not listening anymore. I think that part of your brain will eventually give up if you don't give it the fuel by giving it the attention that it's looking for. That's, that's at least the way, like I said, mine kind of shut off early, but I've got people that tell me that that thing is persistent with them. They, have, they can't sleep. You know, it's with them all the time. And a lot of it is because they listen to it. They take it seriously. Matt, what's your inner dialogue? Do you hear yourself talking to yourself all day? Not in any kind of pathological way. I mean, I'm usually just telling myself, you know, it's funny that we even say that, that we all do have this kind of dualist thing um, going on in our heads, right? Um, but yeah, the little voice in the back of my head is usually saying, you know, you're doing great. <laughs> no, <laughs> cheering me on. Right. <laughs> Duff is constantly, he's always telling me, he was like, when you want to meditate, sit there and tell yourself you are not your thoughts. Yeah. You're is not it, your yeah. thoughts. They happen. Right. I think what you're saying is you have to come to terms with the fact that thoughts will happen. Right. But I think we disagree that I like, I think they are not you because they change. And they can be overhauled and they can be swapped out for different ones. So clearly there's nothing permanent about them. And the self is, there is a permanence about you, right? We can all feel it. It's a little hard to articulate that part of you that um, remains the same from when you were 15, 20, 30, 50 years old. What is that part of you that remains the same? That is you. All the other stuff is not you. 
it, it was masquerading as you. Right. So when you're talking about your brain on story, that story is masquerading as you. It's this part that's hanging around you that knows more about you than anyone. And it's got a costume on and is pretending it's you talking to you on the inside of your head. And you believe it because you're looking at it and you're like, you seem to know a lot about me. Right. And right. it's because it's the ego. But shifting gears. In Tickled, I talk a lot about uh, the difference between thought and experience and that to me, there's only one thing any of us has to do for our entire lives, right? And it's decide what you're going to do right now because it's that's the only thing that you can do ever. Decide what you're going to do right now. Everything else follows. And you have this line that says... Receptive openness comes from the insistence of discovering the truth through actual experience, as opposed to the thoughts in your head, which attempt to abstract truth by reducing experience down into ideas and concepts. I love that. I love that because to me, you crystallized the danger of the mind. The mind models things. Right? right. So it takes in sense data and builds this internal model on the inside. The risk of which is that we start believing the model is the thing. Right. It's it's a forest for the trees. It's a map for the territory thing. So clearly you're advocating the same thing that I am and tickled, which is stop thinking so much. Just start doing what you have to do. Right. And then your story sort of, you know, from what I can see, it sort of it it unfurls around you. It's not something you're telling yourself. It's the thing that's happening. Yeah, it's um, listen, I, I can tell you and it sounds strange. I can tell you that I've spoken to people that will play out in their mind and imagine future scenario, whatever that is. Like I want to be an author or I want to be an actor or whatever. They'll play it out. That's how powerful the mind is. They'll get to the end in their mind. And then they'll say to me, I don't need to do it. I just did it. They, they will actually equate the feelings in their head with the reality of the world. And all of that stuff that's in their head is, is so the amount of experience that you've actually had that most people have had is minuscule. They're getting their ideas from books, from movies, from news broadcasts. They're not actually experiencing anything. And yet they think they know everything, right? It's like, it's like that scene in Goodwill Hunting where uh, yeah. Robin Williams is talking to Will saying, look, man, I can ask you about love and you'll quote me a Shakespeare sonnet. You don't know what love is. You've never been in love, <laughs> right? So, but that's what we're doing more and more of. And I, and I think it's because we have this powerful little device that allows mm -hmm. us to do that, you know? So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting. It really is how powerful the mind is. So you do consult, you were telling us before you do some consulting work for corporates. Like, do you go, do you get brought in to discuss this kind of stuff, like narrative from a corporate perspective? Here's the catch 22 on this. So I, the reason I, that I have the clients that I have is because of this little book I wrote about belief. It's called the business of belief. And it basically mm -hmm. tells you how to create belief in your products, your services, whatever it is that you're creating. 
And unfortunately, for people who are hypnotized in their stories and in their desires of happily ever after, and if I just get this, I'm going to be better and all that, that works on them, right? So then I go out and write this other book that says, don't believe anything. It's all invented, <laughs> right? And, and you want to talk about people, people call me on podcasts, say, what happened to you? I mean, you're the guy that wrote the book on belief. And I say, yeah, I was wrong. And they said, what do you mean you, was, you were wrong? And I said, I was wrong in thinking that's what you should actually focus on if you want a happy life. You don't want to believe in anything. You want to experience life and see what it is and come to your own conclusions of what's best for you on what to do. Not listening to an external world telling you this is how you become successful, compare yourself to others, be happily ever after. So like, like you shifting gears, I, I, it created confusion for a lot of people that were uh, reading my other work. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about the expert specialist dichotomy there too, right? <laughs> we are overrun with experts and uh, more of us need to be specialists. Matt, do you have a narrative of you? What is the story of you? I mean, obviously we all do. One of the interesting points on that is we all have these different narratives and these different kind of stories that probably change depending upon what social group we're in, right? Like you have a different kind of narrative and story that you tell yourself when you're with your family versus when you're with your hockey team, when you're just sort of out with the boys, when you're at a dinner party, when you're at work. Like we have these kind of different narratives that we do t tell ourselves. And yeah, I mean, I, I have all sorts of different one stuff. <laughs> I have many stories that I tell myself, some of which are true. See, that's very interesting what you just said mm -hmm. there, because if you, if you could take those separate groups and grab those people and tell them to write the story about Matt mm -hmm. and compare that to your family, writing the story about Matt and all of, you're going to end up with a bunch of stuff that is not coherent at all. People are going to look mm -hmm. and go, well, wait a minute. Is that Matt or is that Matt or is this Matt? And that's my point is there is no consistent Matt story. Matt is going from stage to stage and he's doing improv. When he sees his parents, he's this Matt. When he sees his family, mm -hmm. he's this Matt. His hockey friends, he's this Matt. You're doing mm -hmm. improv. It's the idea that you have to stay consistent in some story. Yeah. That's what will constrain you. Like, hey, mm -hmm. like I'm a banker. I've been a banker for 30 years. I have to be a banker. Or I've been a business author, right? My whole life, mm -hmm. I, need, I need to be a business author. And we look at it like sunk costs or something. It's really strange the way we look at our life, like some investment. You know, well, I've got this sunk cost. I spent all this time being a business author. I can't let that go. What are you talking about? This is your life. Live, live what, do what you want to do, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. And one thing that resonated with me in your book as well is, you know, that these stories are constraining. I guess we've, we've, we've said this already, but these stories are constraining when all you are, and this is where I kind of drew a parallel to, you know, to write to, to Tickled and what Duff was saying is like, you are what you really are. Your existence is pure potential, right? I mean, you can do anything that you want to do right now. So exactly. I, I agree with that. But people will tell you they can't, right? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like, you know what? You could go out and start a podcast if you want. Exactly. You could be a podcaster. Well, you know, <laughs> it's interesting because I think I've had a revelation of discovering that pure possibility 
Um, and one of the ways it came to be was that in early quarantine, you know, confined at home and our schedules all went away. And so at least for a period of time, there was nothing on your calendar. There was nothing on Tuesday. Like time sort of dissolved for me. Ah, And that's the one of the main issues uh, from what I can tell is when we get stuck on memories or get stuck on expectations. Those are the things that pull this story or like hold it in one place and you're looking for certainty. You commit to um, doing something into some unspecified future. So in early quarantine, when, when suddenly time went away for me, it was a feeling unlike anything I'd ever felt before, which was this opening into now. Mm-hmm. And people will call that presence, like it falls under mindfulness, but it didn't come by virtue of some kind of wellness practice. It just dropped out of nowhere and time had disappeared for me. And suddenly I felt freedom Yeah, because the, the sort of traps of time weren't ensnaring me anymore. So if I have advice to people, one of the things is to stop focusing, to try to let go of past and and future, because as Tom says, it's all just stories, right? And our, our memories get colored by whatever mood you're in in the moment, right? So there's nothing, there's nothing fixed about a memory, uh, and the future is just a guess. So when we get stuck on these stories, we miss out on what's happening, right? The thing that's happening to you right now and that you could be experiencing with all your awareness if you weren't distracting yourself with the stories that you're telling yourself about yourself. Yeah, see, that's, right? that's the key. You, you, you discovered it because time basically stopped. And by time, I, I don't mean the clock. I mean your psychological time. Stop. Right. The cognitive right? time. And, yeah. and that psychological time, that is thinking. That is the story. It pushes you. It, it's not something, it's not, you're not consciously doing it, right? Your mind is pushed. It's like a flow of water. This flow of, of, of psychological time pushes your thinking and it keeps you going. It, and not, and you're stopped and you, and you went, well, what the hell's going on? You know, it's right. like, like you disappeared. Well, like, where did I go? <laughs> right. And everything opened up. Like there, was, suddenly there was this widening of the vista. It was like, what the hell is happening right now? Right. And it was because that whatever that is, like you said, it's thinking slowed because, you know, we're so distracted in modern life here that even if you get a moment to sit by yourself just with yourself, there's a very good chance that your thinking mind will immediately jump to, oh, we can't forget the thing that we're doing tomorrow, or back to the meeting that you just had. I have a line in Tickled where I said, it was only when I couldn't do whatever I wanted to do that I realized that I could do whatever I wanted. Yeah. Right? So quarantine took away activity, and in its place was like this opening of the awareness. Anyway, 
We are running short on time here. Tom, uh, so for the listeners again, Tom's got a couple books. You got another book called I Am Keats, right? Yeah, that's the one when I was writing the screenplay and I was losing my mind. It all spilled out (laughs) into that little book. So when that, like I said, when that came out, I started getting phone calls from people that were worried about me. Like, what what the hell happened to you? Are you all right? What is this? So, uh, so because I use these two, you know, English romantic poets as metaphors for the thinking mind and the experiential mind, the Keats and, and another poet Coleridge, some people just couldn't go. They couldn't have fun and go with that like little kids. So I took the concepts from that book and packed them into your brain on story without the poets. And it seemed to connect with a, a different audience that couldn't couldn't go there with me on the first one, but. All right. So I've only read one of those uh, listeners, your brain on story. It's a really entertaining dialogue where he goes through a lot of this stuff. It's really, really fascinating stuff. I would say just before we go, Tom, I think that, you know, you said this happened to you when you were younger, you and I are drawing inspiration from the same place. What I find fascinating about it is we are not from the same place. Right. We do not know each other. Our experiences are not the same. And yet somehow had sort of a crystal clear view of certain things, which lines up and overlaps almost identically in places. Uh, so there's something fundamental about this experience. And you can you can feel it in Tom's book, uh, Your Brain on Story. So have a look at that. And thanks, Tom. This was awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Duff. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. Gone to the river to get some peace, and we're gone to the valley below. You can meet me in the middle on your way. We won't have to go alone. I know that it's better when we get along, and I think we found a way to get by. It's so easy when I think of the joy you bring instead of trying to prove I'm right. Our lives are just a river, we're all gonna meet in the ocean. My favorite quarantine bands was this Philadelphia-based band called Good Old War. I saw them open for Josh Ritter once, and Marguerite loves them too. That song, The River, very, very much also in keeping with Vedanta that we were talking about last week. Uh, there's a line in it that says, uh, we're all just going to meet in the ocean, right? The more you focus on convincing yourself you're some separate river. You get distracted from the existence that you're part of. What do you think of that? He's. I feel like he and I um, saw something very yeah. similar, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's interesting. I mean, our our listeners didn't catch this, but afterwards he says he's working on all all manner of projects, and there's no thread between them. The Dylan quote that he threw out there is, you know, what's the secret to success in life? Go to bed at night, wake up in the morning, and do what you want in between. Mm-hmm. I, I do like that one. And, you know, and he was asking about my story, you guys asking about my story or whatever. And I was like, there's not a big common thread that ties together this podcast, podcast that I do about music and technology, my day job, which is mostly, you know, working with a company that makes AI powered virtual humans, like quantum capture and, you know, coaching hockey. Sometimes, you know, my parents are always like struggling, I think, to tell their friends what it is I do. Because I am a little bit all over the place. So maybe, yeah, maybe Duff, I just do what I want to do. Right. So yeah. it's, it's, it's <laughs> definitely shows that you're not constrained by 
an idea of what you should be doing. I, a little bit, though. I just just to that point, I have to say, I, I, I do feel it, though. I feel that tension pulling at me a little bit, you know, even with podcasting under my nom de pod, my pseudonym, McButter. Part of that was, you know, a little bit of maybe professional. This is so not on brand, no, not part of my professional story that I wanted to create a little bit of a separation maybe between my professional Listeners, persona, which is a bit of a persona. Did it ever occur yeah. to you that this man's last name was, might not be McButter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they know. I think they know. And I, and it's not, it's not that I was hiding the podcast. It was more creating a little bit of professional separation between my your nom de plume you know yeah your my i have a nom de plume and then i have a uh you know a linkedin kind of story that i tell myself uh when i worked for time inc years ago we weren't allowed to freelance so if you freelance you basically did it under a pseudonym and my pseudonym for years was uh desmond wolf oh that's a good one and that came from the movie with nil and i where Withnell is walking uh, down in the field with Marwood and he turns to um, him and he says, what do you think of Desmond Wolf? And I, Marwood mm-hmm. says something like, what do you mean? He goes, I'm thinking of changing my name. So <laughs> uh, I was Desmond Wolf. So I've had a pseudonym as well. Interesting. Tom Asaker's uh, book and also a lot of the stuff he talks about are reminiscent of Aaron Morgenstern's book, the Starless Sea, which is all about storytelling. I called it in Tickled an Ode to Storytelling. If any listeners have not heard of that, I highly recommend having a look at it. It's one of the best pieces of fiction I've ever read in my life. It's on my bedside table right now. It's so um, good. It's not quite on deck. It's it's up. I'll be reading it soon. I've I've just had a pile of other stuff on top of it. But yeah, Tom has um, one of the things too about him that you can tell is there's a kind of um, a peaceful cheerfulness about him, mm-hmm. which uh, feels like something you know similar to what's come over me in the last little while. Like I'm, it's a little harder to perturb me than it used to be. One of the things he said where he was talking about how certain people would would project into the future in their minds and assume that they'd already done something. I thought he was going somewhere else with that. Like, I'm, so I'm divorced. I've got a um, 13-year-old, right? And, and I can just admit it here. One of my favorite pastimes used to be getting in a theoretical future discussion with my ex-wife in which she finally realized that I was right about everything. And... They would come at me all the time during the day, wherever I was, my mind would get carried away and suddenly I would be in a conversation with her and, you know, my lines were getting more and more refined. They were funnier. Everything I had to say was basically me somehow winning some long running future like argument. And then one day in 2020, I caught that voice starting to do that. And I actually, for one of the first times ever was able to say, wait, no, I'm not doing this today. And I told that voice and that story that it was not welcome. 
And it happened a few other times because during COVID we had, there was some push and pull over custody stuff, right? As I'm sure with all, all divorced parents. So we, we had some back and forth. And whenever that thing came, that conversation, what tried to start itself up in my head again, I was mm-hmm. shockingly somehow newly able to stop it before it started. And then it actually just went away. I don't, mm-hmm. it doesn't try to start anymore. As Tom said, not listening to that voice, whatever it is, the storyteller in you, it will, yeah. ev- it will eventually stop because mm-hmm. even if it's not real, this, this sort of ego part of you that's telling you stories, it's based on reality. As we said, like the ocean and the waves and yeah. it will cease to draw strength from the well that is you because it's meeting with no satisfaction and it will eventually yeah. stop talking to you. Those stories, those, those ruminations are, you know, the basic pathology of anxiety and depression are those stories when they, you can't stop them in your head. With depression, it's typically about the past and it's these distorted negative stories of yourself in the past and this kind of self-loathing that people have. And with anxiety, it's the same thing, but it's these ruminations that just keep circling around about things that haven't happened yet, worries that you have, right? Right. And people generally ruminate and can't have, you know, they, 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 they aren't able to flush them out, to ignore them and to not tell themselves these stories. You know, we took the tools of the hard sciences statistical analysis and started applying them to our own lives, which led us to the erroneous conclusion that we could predict the future, but more specifically that we could get a gauge on and control the risk of various outcomes. And while there's nothing wrong with being prepared right? For a change in the weather or a pandemic or anything. There's like, you want to have a contingency or an action plan. The idea that we can control what we consider risks is fundamentally flawed. You can't change the future. You can only do what you're going to do right now. But by getting obsessed with the fact that we think we can calculate probabilities, that to me is one of the main reasons that's led to that anxiety you talked about, right? We think we can predict what's going to happen. So then we get stuck on one outcome. And when you do that, you're distracting yourself from what's happening right now and your ability to react in the moment. And if you distract yourself in the moment, your awareness contracts. And it makes you unsettled, which makes you more vulnerable to anxiety. It's like uh, getting caught in an endless loop. If you're not taking advantage of the present, you'll feel unsettled, which will open you up to more anxiety about the future. Mm-hmm. Especially if you live in a floodplain. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so on to... Uh, I've got another one for you that isn't traditional. This is more about the story uh, that is you, per Tom Asaker and what we've been talking about today. Nisargadatta Maharaj, in his book, I Am That, says the following. Give up all questions except one. Who 
am I? After all, the only fact you are sure of is that you are. The I am is certain. The I am this is not. Struggle to find out what you are in reality. To know what you are, you must first investigate and know what you are not. Discover all that you are not. Body, feelings, thoughts, time, space, this, that. Nothing, concrete or abstract, which you can perceive, can be you. The very act of perceiving shows that you are not what you perceive. That's subject-object duality. The clearer you understand that on the level of mind, you can be described in negative terms only, the quicker you will come to the end of your search and realize that you are the limitless being. So that brings us back to the whole point about existence itself. You are any story that you can tell, that you can objectify and look at and describe, it can't be you. It's not you. Right. So anything that you can perceive is not you. The self is the thing that stands behind it all. What Maharaj is saying there is the I am is certain. The fact that you exist is certain. That's the one most undeniable aspect of your reality that you exist. I am this is when you start labeling that reality. That's when you start limiting yourself and boxing yourself in by telling yourself that you are one thing or another. As Matt said earlier in this program, you are limitless potential. And another thing Maharaj says is, he says, just as every wave subsides into the ocean, so does every moment return to its source. Realization consists in discovering the source and abiding there, right? That's called potential. It's called possibility. When you when you get when you go too far down into what's happening, and start telling yourself that that is you, you lose sight of the realm of possibility, and start pinning yourself down with words and labels and ideas. And you don't want to do that. If you want more on this, read Tom Asker's book, Your Brain on Story. It's 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 all about this. It's delightful. Final question for you, Doc. Yeah. Are you a master kombucha brewer? You know, it's funny that you ask that. Um, I have moments where I think I, where I'm absolutely certain that we make some of the best kombucha in the world here. And then the next day I will taste it and I will say, Joey, I can't even tell if this is skunky or not. So when I believe that it is so, it seems to be so. And then there are times when I doubt it and it seems definitely not so. So it depends when you ask me. At this very moment, sitting in the kegerator is, uh, there are two flavors, elderberry jackfruit and (laughs) something with lime. I can't remember. Uh, And they're both delicious. The only problem is the kegerator seems to be breaking down on me. So I'm not a master keg operator, but I am a master kombucha maker. Excellent. Some stories you can tell yourself are, are good. Exa- right? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> everything is going to be just fine. There's the story for today. And it all ended with, and everything turned out okay in the end. We will see you all next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. 
ever-present moment Traveling town to town The mystery of the motion Right here, right now Right here, right now Whoa, right here, right now You've been listening to How to Tickle Yourself with your hosts, Duff McDonald and Matt McButter. You can help us by liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with others. You can talk to us and see what else is happening on Instagram and Facebook at How to Tickle Yourself. This program was recorded in Studio B of the historic Rockledge Recording Studio and the Tunnel Under Arundel. Right here, right now, our original 16-part theme music was written and recorded by the legendary Paul Reddick and Kyle Ferguson of the Sidemen, with the brilliant Steve Mariner on bass and drums and in the mixing room. The podcast is produced and distributed by Storic Media. Our editor is Andrew Steiner. Our coordinator is Samantha Abramovitz. Our producers are Kristen Verbitsky and Chuck LaBella. For more information, visit storicmedia.com. That's S-T-O-R-I-C media.com. My love, my dear...